Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Steve. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) It's our first episode of 2019. Yeah, and what we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural area, and share with you everything we learned. And Bill, what are we talking about today? Well, before we get into that, I have a special announcement. Oh, okay. I don't, because we haven't talked too much besides texts for the past few weeks. No. So uh, you haven't been up to date on what's going on in my life, but I may have Lyme disease. Holy cow, seriously? <laughs> seriously. Wow. <laughs> can you, can you, uh, do you think you could narrow it down to a particular tick experience? <laughs> well, for someone who's a regular listener, you may know that uh, in May of 2018, I did definitely find an embedded tick that I had to remove, and it would be rare, it would be it would be odd if it took so long, because it's January 2019 now, so six, seven months. It would be strange for it to take that long for symptoms to surface, mm-hmm. but we're outside so much. It's possible I had a tick sometime during the fall, sometime during the summer that I didn't know about. Wow. But in mid-December, I started having joint problems, like joint pain, um, feeling really tired, having... I don't know, it just kind of sounds like being an old person. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. And actually, I hope so. I hope that's what it is. Yeah, me too. But um, I actually went and got the blood test yesterday. Uh-huh. So we're waiting to hear right Ooh, now. Waiting on bated breath. <laughs> that's right. So uh, I was actually talking to uh, my wife saying, hey, maybe we could work out some kind of contest on the field guides where people vote on whether or not Bill has Lyme disease. It could be, yeah. <laughs> Let's solve this democratically. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, I mean, we do that with the climate debate and evolution. Right. We, you know, a bunch of non-experts, you know, chiming in. Well, I will uh, update everybody on the next episode. Great. Yeah, so... <laughs> we'll be doing it from Bill's bed. That's right. <laughs> It'll be bedridden. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that cool? Do you want to say where we are? Sure. So we are at a sanctuary called Owens Falls Sanctuary, and this is operated by the Western New York Land Conservancy, this nonprofit group that's been doing great work for over 20 years conserving uh, private land through conservation easements, outright purchasing. But we're right now uh, just outside East Aurora, which is a suburb of Buffalo, New York. So we're about 20 minutes, half an hour southeast of Buffalo where we do a lot of our recording, Mm -hmm. but this, it's a small preserve. There's uh, private houses not too far away, but there's this beautiful shale bottom creek, and we're standing uh, on the trail at the top of a ravine, and down below us, there's probably, what, a 150, 200-foot waterfall? Oh, yeah. Down there? That's really nice. Yeah, so this was private land, and um, then recently it, it became available, and the Land Conservancy did a really quick fundraising campaign, and snatched it up wow so now it's protected wow it's 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 really fun to find new places yeah and, and i guess we literally couldn't have found this place like a year ago no. but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but wow that's that's really cool yeah so this is owens falls sanctuary and the western new york land conservancy if anyone's interested they can look them up they're doing great work yeah so i think we had them wait long enough yes. do you <laughs> want to say what our uh, episode is about today sure So we are going to be looking at, instead of just one species, Mm -hmm. which Steve and I have been talking about, we seem to be kind of focused on... We've we've done that in the past many times, yeah. Now we're going to be focused on 
two species. <laughs> we are going to be looking at, but but a particular problem in that in that species, exactly. in that two species. Yeah, it's between the the downy and the hairy woodpecker. They're really the question of why do they look alike? Why do these two species look so similar? And it's not as simple as I had thought for most of my life. Oh no, yeah. uh, actually, I never even thought about it until recently <laughs> <laughs> all right well the noise from the waterfall it's great for us but it might not be so good for the audience yeah, yeah. so why don't we head down the trail yeah yeah right yeah. yeah so i think a good way to start is just by talking about downies and hairy woodpeckers in mm -hmm. case people aren't familiar with them yeah sure yeah. i'm imagining a lot of our listeners have seen downies and hairies but for those who haven't these are small to medium woodpeckers, mm -hmm. chiefly black and white when you look at them. Uh, yeah. They're uh, spotted black and white. And males have a red cap, females the cap is absent. Well, I almost think I would say more of like a red spot, sort of. Like okay, yeah, yeah, I would agree. A little agree. bit less than a cap. Because it's down yeah. near the nape of a neck. Yeah, right. Yeah, I suppose the cap is a little too generous uh -huh. in the amount of red, red that's there. Uh -huh. Now, downies are smaller, so they're typically five and a half to seven inches long. They're almost identical to the larger hairy woodpeckers. Mm -hmm. Hairies are usually seven to 10 inches long. Downies often have black spots on their white tail feathers. Yes. So when yeah. I first learned about them, I was taught downies are dinky and downies have dots. <laughs> so, downies have dots, that's good. Yeah. Now, in my research for this episode though, I did find out that in some areas, especially out west, Mm -hmm. Those dots are absent. Yeah, they I also can read be. that. Yep. They can be absent. And in terms of their size, I just want to mention that, you know, sometimes lengths are really hard to imagine. Yeah. But let's just say that the hairy is more robin-sized and the downy is more sparrow-sized. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. The other way you can tell the, uh, the difference when you're looking at sizes, because if they're not next to each other, it can be difficult. <laughs> sure. But if you look at the head and the size of the head in relation to the bill length, Mm-hmm. The bill of a hairy is really as long as the head. Yeah. It, it's much longer than the bill of a downy. A downy, the bill length is actually shorter than the head. Mm -hmm. And a good picture that someone gave to me once was they said a hairy woodpecker, the head is like a walnut with a nail in it, whereas a downy, <laughs> the head is like a grape with a pin in it. Yeah. You, you know, I don't know who taught me this. It, it was years ago, though where they were saying, when you're looking at one of these woodpeckers and you don't know which one it is, one of the easiest ways is just look at the head and the bill and just in your head kind of like rotate it 80 degrees and see how far back into the head it would go. And the downy really doesn't go all that far into the head where like the hairy potentially could be sticking out the other side just a little bit. Right, yeah, yeah so the bill is much longer. Yeah, you have to use your imagination for that one, but... You meant rotate the bill 180 degrees. What did I say? I think you just said 80 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is actually a very, very uh, complex, imaginary uh, thing you have, to, you have to picture, so, yeah. <laughs> All right, and then I did come across that the calls are are different. Oh, I, for sure, yeah. But I felt like some of the articles kind of overstated how different the calls are. Right, right. Because, again, unless you're hearing both of them, it can be hard to, to say. So I, or I unless will, you have a lot of experience. Right, okay. Because I will say that the downy has that really easy way to remember is that descending downy. So they have that like... Doo -doo 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 -doo. A rattling yeah, descending like A call. rattling descent where the hairy has more of like a rattle on like an even pitch. So it's like the same pitch all the way through. And then there's there's also uh, their 
not the rattle, but the call. Mm-hmm. A downy, it makes a, a soft pick. Mm-hmm. And I came across one article, I think it was actually through Bird Note, that said, just remember, a downy has a soft downy pick. It's soft and downy like a duvet. <laughs> and then a hairy, the their pick call is loud and uh, hairy. Oh. Well, the hairy has a loud call, loud and hairy like a heavy metal band. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah. I, I did hear it was a, it, it was louder, longer, and a higher pitch as well. My juvenile mind is moving in directions that I won't go into. Okay. <laughs> so wait, do you mind that I bring up one more thing? No, before go ahead. we, because this is kind of getting into the main topic. Yeah. One difference between the species that was mentioned in some of the um, reading that I had done, it mentioned the tufts above their bills. Okay. Like just above their bills, and. They were saying that the uh, the downies is more conspicuous. It has a more conspicuous tuft of those nasal bristles. Oh. And, and I, I just want to bring this in, and I'm just going to quote it exactly, because it was kind of strange. So it was, uh, I think it was the, the book's called How Birds Got Their Names. So the author says, Linnaeus, who was no prude about sex, named it pubescens. And they're referring to Picoides pubescens, the downy woodpecker. Well, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> you said Picoides. <laughs> yep, I did. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there is debate currently about the genus that the downy woodpecker is in. Yeah. Um, the, the species epithet pubescens is constant. Same all the way through. Yeah, yeah. but we're going to get into that a little later on. All right. So Linnaeus, who was no prude about sex, named it pubescens because its downy plumage was, he thought, like nascent genital hair at puberty. Okay. That's so weird. That is a little weird. That's messed up. I can't imagine like being out with a group of people and seeing something like that and being like, doesn't that remind you of genital hair at puberty that's just starting to grow? Yeah. I mean, who's thinking Could you about imagine that? everybody else? Crickets. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I, I do have another, um, another book that is called The Dictionary of Bird Names, and it goes through all the genera and, and, and specific epithets. And I think this, I, I am pretty sure they... They're just quoting from Linnaeus himself. Uh, well, did he talk in modern English? <laughs> I don't... Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know I'm either. Sure. So this may be a translation. Okay. We have no idea what language Linnaeus spoke. <laughs> so, pubescens, downy, and then this this is the part that's in quotes, with the hairs of puberty and not quite so virely unkempt as villosis. <laughs> so... All right. Yeah. I don't know, man. So... Hairs of puberty. Yeah, weird. <laughs> what a weird guy. And I also think it was different times. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, that's funny because when I looked it up, pubescens, mm-hmm. I just found soft, downy hairs. Right. That's I mean, what it referred to. That's the most PC version of it today. It's been cleaned up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So this whole problem of how these birds look alike, I think you'll agree that for... I don't know, several centuries, it was basically just assumed, oh, these birds are closely related. That's what I assumed. Yeah. Yeah. And for a long time, they were placed in the Picoides genus. Mm-hmm. And last night, I was looking through field guides to try to find when the change took place. Right. So I have a Sibley guide to bird life and behavior from 2001. And at that time, the downy and the hairy were both listed as being in Picoides. Right. So... Again, the downy is Picoides pubescens, and the hairy was Picoides velosus. Yes. Now, in 2005, there was a study in the condor on plumage convergence in Picoides woodpeckers. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm going to read a little bit from it because it's a little bit technical, but uh, I think it's relatively easy to understand. So from the abstract, it said, Reconstruction of ancestral character traits revealed multiple events of independent evolution of derived character states in most species studied. So they're saying the way they look now, those appearances evolved independently of each other in many of those species that were grouped together into one genus. They're like, wait a minute, they did not have a common ancestor. So a couple ways that that could happen is either convergent evolution right. for one reason or another, or mimicry. Those are the two big right. yeah, ways to go about that. And they went on to say some plumage characters evolved in association with habitat type. For example, there was a statistically significant association between loss of dorsal barring, so barring underneath, and use of densely vegetated habitats among Picoides species. Mm -hmm. So they said possible causal explanations for convergence in plumage patterns may include mimicry and interspecific territoriality, so territory competition. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned convergent evolution. Yes. So I feel like we just need to define that. Sure, yeah. So this is uh, outward similarity is one example of conver convergent evolution. And this is when two species not closely related develop the same traits. So this often happens because of similar habitats. So these species, maybe in different parts of the world, evolve solutions to similar problems. Right. So they evolve similar solutions. So a good example are wings. Bats yeah. have wings, birds have wings. Um, cacti and euphorbs. Have wings. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, do they? <laughs> so they're, they're all considered succulents, right? Uh-huh. But they evolved these characteristics independently. They, weren't, they don't have a common ancestor. Right. Uh, one of the most famous examples of convergent evolution is the camera-like eye of cephalopods, like squids and then us, vertebrates, mammals. Right. We have something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the nadaria, the box jellies. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I do have to mention. So I came uh, in the research for this, I was watching some David Attenborough uh, documentary on squids. Mm -hmm. Did you know... He pronounces it cephalopod. Oh, instead of cephalopod. Yeah, apparently Weird. that's a British thing. I didn't know. So, like, I heard that, and it was just like, ah, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? All right, so from now on, it's cephalopod yes, in this if, podcast. If David Attenborough does it, <laughs> that's what we're going to do. Uh, so this leads to us asking, so why the convergence of downy woodpeckers and hairy woodpeckers? And spoiler alert, folks, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm going to... Uh, I'm gonna tell you what's coming because the studies that we looked at are really not conclusive right with this topic it's really more the journey that you got to enjoy right and one thing i do want to say is that the papers that i was reading hinted that it's probably and we'll go into this in more detail yeah. in a bit but it's it seems more likely that it's mimicry and one of the reasons that they had brought up and i don't know if this is something that's so conclusive but that the young don't really look similar it's the adults that look more similar okay um in that final plumage no so. I, I have a question for you because yeah. earlier you know just a few minutes ago you said it's either convergent evolution or mimicry right isn't mimicry convergent evolution that's so tricky i don't know <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it would seem like mimicry is when species look like each other right and that is what you call convergent evolution so I feel like mimicry is one avenue for conversion evolution to happen. We'll have to, we'll get back to you guys on that. Like check the, check the episode notes because 
I wonder if they're grouped in the same way. Right. Because that would be very interesting. Because we, you know, there's a lot of... Yeah, I've never thought of mimicry being convergent evolution. Right. But I... Reading, yeah, doing research yeah. for this episode, and there may be people out there listening saying, man, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And you know what? You're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't, and this is one reason we do this We're not podcast. ashamed of it, yeah. No. And this question coming up during research, I'm like, huh, I never thought of that. Right. I love that this question has suddenly appeared, and now we get to think about it, and hopefully someone out there who knows more than we do can say, right. dummies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think of this? I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's really going to be the meat of this episode, talking about these species are not closely related, so how did they end up looking like each other? Right, right. All right, so I feel like now would be a good time to get into taxonomy, right? Yes. Right. Uh, and I think a big reason I want to get into the taxonomy a little bit is because this phenomenon that we see in downy and hairy woodpeckers is not incredibly rare in this family. Um, it actually happens a lot both within species of the family and outside of it. And you're talking about the woodpecker family. The woodpeckers, yeah. Okay. Pick a day. Okay. Or piss a day. I don't know. <laughs> How would David Attenborough say it? Now I'm questioning everything. I'll send him an email. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it. So. All right, well, hang on. Yeah. Before we get into it, mm-hmm. uh, right now, folks, just to give you a, a visual here. So we moved a little way from the waterfalls. You may hear them a little bit in the background. Uh-huh. But Steve is standing like right at the edge of the, the slope. It's almost like a sheer drop uh, of probably, I would say, a couple hundred feet. I feel like you're threatening me right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're making me nervous. So can we move away from... <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> like just standing there, it's freaking me out a little bit. All right, yeah. all right. I'm just afraid you're going to fall. Sure, sure. You don't trust me. I'm getting up there in years. I could just, my legs could give out at any time. All right. So the Picidae, that's uh, the woodpecker family. So this family has 33 genera and 217 recognized species. So that's not a huge family. No. no. Um, but they are found in every major biogeographical region, except for Australia, Madagascar, and Antarctica. There's no woodpeckers in Australia? Mm-mm. Wow. Yeah, really interesting, right? Okay. Yeah, so we'll go into this a little bit more detail later, but... When I think of woodpeckers, I often think of, you know, the strong chisel-like beak for digging into bark, you know, to get at the burrowing insects. I also think of their special supportive skulls so they don't die from concussions. (laughs) I I think of their zygodactyl feet where they have two frontwards-facing toes and two backwards-facing toes. Helps them perching on trunks. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, they have that stiff tail full of melanin that uh, really helps them prop themselves against bark. And they have those long, sometimes barbed tongues. But as we'll see, that's not always the case. In fact, uh, there's three subfamilies of woodpecker. The first one, Jingidae. They're called the Rhinacs. Um, This subfamily only has two species in one genus. It's Jinx which I think that's kind of a cool cool one. So it's actually the sister group to all woodpeckers. So it's probably the earliest branching group of woodpeckers. So these guys have numerous distinct morphological characters that set them apart from the rest of the family, including that they have soft plumage. They have cryptic coloration. You don't really think of our woodpeckers here being too cryptic. What do you mean by cryptic? So they blend in with their surroundings a little bit better than than what you would think of. (laughs) You know, downies and harries anyway. Um... And they have uh, an absence of those characteristic rigid tail feathers. Oh. So they're not propping themselves against trees like like our downies, harries, and basically every woodpecker that we're used to thinking. The more advanced. Uh, sure. 
species. Yeah, um, they're mostly found in Europe, Asia, and Africa. So they're not really something we'd see around here. But in case we have any, you know, <laughs> listeners from from overseas, and we uh, do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the next group is uh, the piculates. So that subfamily is called Picuminae. So these guys have 29 species and three genera. Um, this group really doesn't look like the woodpeckers we're used to again but they do tap on trees uh, some of them have skin around the eye uh, some of them lack the hullocks that's that backward facing toe uh, so humans have a hullocks um, yeah. it's our big toe uh, <laughs> i stub my hullocks yeah oh my hullocks <laughs> So uh, these guys are primarily uh, found in South America, but there are three Asian and one African species. Um, and the last group, the typical woodpeckers, this is Picanae. So this is the group that we're most familiar with. Um, these guys are found worldwide, and uh, there are 176 species in 21 genera, and that's over 80% of the family. So this is, they call it typical woodpeckers for a reason, but I wanted to bring up the other two just to let you guys know that there are woodpeckers that don't really resemble what most typical people, woodpeckers. Yeah, what all. most people think of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, this is the group that the hairy and downy woodpeckers are part of. So now we're going to ignore everything but the typical woodpeckers. Yeah. So the typical woodpeckers have a few characteristics. They have that sturdy bill that's sharply pointed for chipping into tree trunks for wood-boring insects. Uh, the bill is actually really dense and chisel-like. And I read this a few times. It's a self-sharpening edge. Really? And that would kind of make some sense because you, you wouldn't want a woodpecker to have its... <laughs> dull, dulling right. over time, right? <laughs> and how else is it going to be sharpened, you know? Right. I never even thought of it. Um, so uh, both the bills and the skulls evolved uniquely to be able to pound on wood um, very hard. I think I read that uh, when they're pounding, they experience about a thousand Gs of oh, force. Oh, yeah, it was crazy the number I came across. Yeah, yeah, and I guess the comparison was that if a human skull experienced even 100 Gs, we would just die. Right. So, so you know that there's something special going on there if they're, would, if they're withstanding more than 10 times the amount of force. We would die and it wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and uh, in terms of how rapidly they can go, they can, um, they can pound, oh, I, it's just going to sound weird. Sorry. They can pound wood up to 20 blows per second <laughs> in some species. Uh, so can you, Bill, We'll just right? leave that. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> oh, I was going to say, we'll just leave that there, but Steve yep, couldn't. <laughs> I jumped it. Yeah, I jumped the gun. All right. Uh, um, so one of the ways that they protect themselves is that woodpeckers actually don't have a whole lot of cerebral fluid. Have you, did you read about this at no, all? No, no. No. Um, so their brains are actually much more tightly packed in the skull, and so it can't bounce against the skull causing harm oh, okay. where isn't that what concussions come from yeah. is where the your brain bouncing the around in your or your brain bouncing around in your skull yeah yeah because yeah, uh, i i read i came across a study that said that researched woodpeckers have a buildup of a protein in their brain mm -hmm. that's the same protein that builds up in the brain of people that get repeated concussions oh okay but the research what they're thinking is that it doesn't cause the same problems in woodpeckers that it, it does in people because right. obviously woodpeckers <laughs> they get along just fine they're doing okay yeah. <laughs> yeah. all right so i'm going to move on to they have these very long tongues um and these are used for fishing out insects from inside of their burrows inside bark and one of the interesting things now have you read about the hyoid no so it's actually um 
it's kind of what the tongue is attached to, and it kind of wraps around the back of the skull. Okay, I didn't know that. And it either, and I've seen two diagrams where sometimes I guess they'll either loop under the eye or they'll go further towards the nose. So it can actually unravel from around the head so the tongue can stick out that much further. And, um, and this, and the hyoid actually helps protect their skull as well. I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but I, I didn't come up with one this time. Well, while you're talking, it, it just reminded me that when we bird banned, I don't know if you recall that when, a lot of times when we ban birds, especially if they're young birds, we're trying to figure out how young they are, we'll look at the skull. Yes. Because in juvenile birds, birds that are very young, the skull hasn't fully formed, so there's windows that you can see mm -hmm. faintly through the, the skin. But woodpeckers, you cannot skull them because the tongue is in the way. Wow, okay. So if you tried to skull them, you... You just can't see the skull. I don't remember... In some woodpeckers. Yeah, I don't remember ever catching a woodpecker while I was out. We don't catch a ton yeah. Yeah, when we're banding, so mm -hmm. it's, it's not common. Yeah, you'd much more likely see one than I would. <laughs> yeah, you're there every week. We do like tons of catbirds. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Yep. <laughs> Maybe someday we can do a catbird episode, and it would actually just be a bird banding episode. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah. All right. So, uh, like I mentioned before, they also have a stiff tail. This is used to prop them when they're uh, clinging to tree bark. Um, the tail actually can, they can just stick it right into bark crevices. It just gives them that extra support. And I want to mention that unlike most birds, the tail molts from the outward to the inward feathers. Um, so the supporting central feathers are retained the longest. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I also mentioned this before, uh, they have the zygodactyl feet, so that's two facing forward, two facing backwards. Um, and I, I, I was really curious about this, so I looked at what other bird groups have these types of feet. Um, and uh, parrots have it. Um, uh, of course, the woodpeckers, that includes uh, flickers as well. And also cuckoos have it. And so that would include uh, roadrunners and also some owls. Really? Yeah. I wonder why owls? I don't know. Because they're just, you know, they perch. Yeah. Huh. All right. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, another thing is that most species drum on resident limbs, poles, drain pipes, and, you know, any other echoey surface right. that's really obnoxious to <laughs> announce their territories. Um, these drumming sounds are often distinctive, and a lot of people can actually use them in identification. Right. I can't. <laughs> well, I know around here, yeah. the sapsucker is one that mm. that I can readily identify, especially during the spring when they're doing it often on gutters there's a certain rhythm that they have a boom 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 it's a very yeah. even uh slower rhythm than i hear from other woodpeckers so. now do you recognize the woodpecker or do you recognize the sound of your own gutters at home <laughs> <laughs> no any gutters <laughs> anybody's gutters <laughs> yeah uh, this is one last thing i wanted to bring up because i for a long time despite being very outdoorsy and seeing a lot of species and really going out of my way to see, you know, various plants and animals. Um, I had not seen a pileated woodpecker for a very long time. Yeah. But for the longest time, I would see them, but I would see them in flight. And they have a very distinctive yes, flight. Yes, an undulating yeah, flight yeah. pattern. Most and, woodpeckers do. And I was like, it doesn't count until I see it perched on something. <laughs> like, I don't <laughs> want to just see it flying. Because I would see it flying all the time. But I, it took me so long to finally see it just doing its thing oh. right in a tree above me it took uh, way too long i guess i've been fortunate then. yeah well i don't think so i just think i've just been unlucky <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah they definitely have that undulating flight so i've also heard it described that they have noisy heavy wing beats and the wings will actually fold against the bodies after each series of flaps so that's where that undulating pattern would right. come from up and down mm -hmm. up and down 
Yep, and just lastly, uh, their nest cavity is just uh, chiseled deep into large branches or the trunk of a tree. And the reason I brought it up is because uh, they are um, kind of taken by less equipped birds later on. And lots of other animals as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah so. so. So if you have a woodlot, folks, leave standing dead trees for woodpeckers and all the critters that will use it after. Yep, a lot of people are just riding on the coattails of woodpeckers. Yeah, so. A lot of animals. <laughs> Animals are people too. <laughs> what? I think just, yeah. <laughs> we Definitionally know not, yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's what you had on taxonomy? I'm done, yeah. All right, so I feel we do have to mention that in 2015, there was a major shakeup <laughs> in woodpecker taxonomy. <laughs> Maybe you heard about it, but probably not. So there, there was a DNA analysis done, mm-hmm. and this was of the pied woodpeckers, which is the tribe... Dendropocini. So tribe is below... Let me Subfamily. See. It's below family and subfamily, but it's above genus. Yes. So there were three existing genera in there, including Picoides, which was where Downies and Harries were placed for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And they were found to be... Let's see if Steve knows this. Polyphyletic. Polyphyletic. Yes. Yeah. So monophyletic is where you have... The ancestor and all of its descendants. Right. Paraphyletic. Mono being one. Yep. So one. It's just one group. Paraphyletic is where you have the ancestor, and then the group contains not all of its descendants. So there are some of its descendants that are just not included in that particular group. All right. And then polyphyletic is where you have a number of species that are part of a group, but the ancestor of all those species is not included in the group. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I apologize. I hope that's cleared up. But And usually when you have a polyphyletic group, it usually has something to do with convergence, reversals. There's, They're part of a group not because of a shared evolutionary history. They're part of a group because of certain shared, independent... Shared sh- similarities. Yeah. Yeah. Shared similarities that were independently derived. Yeah. yeah. So as because of this study... Six new genera were created, and things were rearranged. So most of the former members of Picoides were moved to uh, a genus called Dryobates, and then also one called Leuconotopicus. Uh, only three of the original members remained. So hairy woodpeckers are more closely related to the very different-looking white-headed woodpecker and the red cockaded woodpeckers, mm-hmm. while the downy's closest relatives are the ladder-backed and the nuttall's woodpeckers. So some ornithologists place both species into dryobates, uh, and that's derived from the Greek word druos, meaning woodland, and bates, meaning walker, so woodland walker, okay. which I thought was cool. Um, so when I looked it up, most of the sources I could found put both of them into dryobates. So dryobates pubescens would be downy, and dryobates velosus, which means shaggy or velvety, would be the hairy woodpecker. Now, now I don't know if where you're going with this, but that's I did not have the hairy woodpecker in that genus. You found the hairy in Leuconotopicus velosus. Yes. Yes. So the International Ornitho- Ornithological Congress, they classify the hairy in Leuconotopicus. Okay. Okay. Now, to complicate matters, and maybe someone out there can clear this up for us, the American Ornithological Union, they still place both species in picoides. I think 
they're just behind the times. I would have to guess. Uh, the, I think the, the most recent study that I read strictly on the phylogeny, and it was the first study that actually did the whole family instead of just individual tribes or just yeah. smaller groups. So they actually looked at 203 out of 217 of the species in the family. Yeah. And they were using Leuconotopicus. So okay. I have to imagine that that was like the most complete look at the family. Right. And uh, I, I would go with their, and that's, their choice. That's so. why I was going to end by saying that the International Ornithological Congress says the hairy is Leuconotopicus velosus and the downy is Dryobates pubescens. All right. So that is the taxonomy. Got it. Uh, and what this all suggests is that the downy and hairy woodpeckers, they look like one another, but this is for reasons other than common ancestry. Yeah, and yeah. that's what we're going to get into now. And now I just want to quickly bring up some other examples within the family. All right, so before I go into this, I just want to say that these are definitely not mimicry, okay. <laughs> what I'm going to be bringing up right now. So uh, these are just a few examples from within the typical woodpecker of plumage looking very similar despite the species not being very closely related and uh every example that i'm about to give these species are all in different genera so they are very much not related um so some examples of morphological convergence would be there's a rufous woodpecker in asia and then there's some species of celius woodpecker in south america they have very very similar morphological characteristics they're basically medium-sized red-brown woodpeckers uh, another example would be the greater and lesser flamebacks of asia the helmeted woodpecker of south america and members of the dracopus genus worldwide so these guys all basically look like pileated woodpeckers despite not being in the same area and part of the reason i bring this up is because this is part of the reason that it makes phylogeny especially using morphological characteristics, really difficult specifically in this family because, you know, the, the old style of breaking down relationships was looking at what the bird looked like right. and comparing it to things and thinking, oh, if it looks like this, they're probably very closely related. And that's not the case in woodpeckers. Often. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really something they have to watch out for. So really genetics is the major way to do it in woodpeckers. And it gets kind of complicated because a recent genetic and biogeographic analysis of the family indicated that there's at least six instances of new world, old world sister relationships. And what that means is that Eurasian woodpecker populations expanded into the Americas and then were subsequently separated. Um, and then they went through their own separate speciation events at least six times. And I think all that's to say is that it would have been very hard to guess it, but there are many cases where the most closely related species to a North American woodpecker would be a European woodpecker that doesn't look all that similar. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it makes things very complicated in terms of intuitively right. knowing who's related to who and, and trying to figure out uh, and the correct evolutionary relationship between these between in, within this family. You really can't do it without looking at the genetics. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, so we, we've mentioned mimicry a couple times, mm -hmm. and I feel like we need to give a little bit of background on that, because sure. classically, mimicry includes three players. There's a model, some species, that's the model, mm -hmm. then there's a mimic, 
who's pretending to be that species. And then there's some observer, which is typically a predator. Yeah, the model. Just like in humans, we all want to be like the model. <laughs> We're all the model mimics, yeah. you could say, socially anyway. <laughs> Maybe you are. I mean, I'm the model. Bill. Oh, that's true. I forgot. You, you are the model. Uh-huh. I know just... you guys don't know what I look like. but No, no, you mentioned it in oh, the vegan episode. That's true, that's yeah, true. Go back and listen to that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Let's talk about, have you heard of Batesian mimicry? Sure. So what's that? I know it's different than Mullerian mimicry, Very but good. I can't remember. So one of them, tell me which one this is. I'm going to define it first, and then you're just going to scream out the term. <laughs> okay. When you have two toxic species that end up looking similar to each other. That's Mullerian mimicry. Okay, so Batesian mimicry is the one where you have one species that has some type of special defense, like a like a toxicity, and then you have another non-toxic species that is mimicking the morphological characteristics of that toxic species. Right, so remember that Batesian mimicry is a sheep in wolf's clothing. Duh! <laughs> yeah. So this is named after uh, the English naturalist uh, in the 1850s when he explored the Amazon Valley and he was collecting butterflies. He found that some harmless butterflies looked similar to toxic species mm. and birds avoided them. And this was the first scientific account of mimicry. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he didn't explain it fully because he had a, a colleague uh, who was operating at the same time, a German naturalist, Fritz Mueller, And he noticed that you have species that are all toxic and they evolve to eventually end up looking like each other or similar at least to each other. Um, So they share the benefits of a warning signal. Do you have any um, uh, maybe well-known examples? Well, poison dart frogs. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then think of rattlesnakes. It doesn't have to just be visual. Right. So rattlesnakes, they have this warning. Uh, that they share and they may not even be closely related. I think the big one that I always think of, maybe because when I was learning about this in school, I think um, monarchs always came up. Monarchs and viceroys? Yeah, I believe so. But I was looking into that, and Mm -hmm. there's actually recent research that calls that into question, saying that, no, it's not Batesian mimicry, that there actually is some toxicity to viceroys. Really? And that it may be more Mullerian mimicry. Interesting. Um, so we might do a podcast or I may post something on Facebook or Twitter. It could be uh, fun to, yeah. to visit that topic, especially no, a topic that everyone thinks that they know pretty well. And that's really how the article started off. They're yeah. like, oh, what do you know about viceroys? <laughs> Everybody, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Anyone who at least knows anything about butterflies and monarchs is like, oh, they mimic monarchs. Right, right. But it's not as clear as uh, people have thought best version of learning when your expectations uh you know are are not met are usurped yeah Yeah, like a good joke yeah (laughs) so what does this have to do with harry's and downies because i don't know this doesn't fit (laughs) right because they're one of them is not uh toxic so (laughs) exactly right so we're just giving examples of what they're not they are not batesian mimics they are not mullerian mimics right this would actually be the first investigation of mimicry between ecological competitors in the absence of third-party observers. Oh, okay. okay. At least some of the studies looking into this. The one study that I came across, it was from 2012. This was in the Journal of Theoretical Biology. Mm-hmm. And this was very theoretical. Um, this is one of those papers where probably 75% of the pages are just... Um, formulas. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> And I'm just flipping through them. No, we're... In- <laughs> I'm assuming we are not going to get into this because I had this 32-page paper that I had a very difficult time understanding, so I was decided that I would not include it. But I would mention that this is often called the Downey-Harry game. Yes. And it has a lot to do with game theory. In fact, 
Nash has brought up. Oh, the guy from A Beautiful Mind? Yeah, so I don't remember his full name, but but Nash was the guy who developed game theory in the first place, and then I think his work is still being used. I don't know anything about this field, and so I didn't really want to get into it, but they brought up the Harry Downey game is named from another game called the Hawk Hawk Dove game. I have... Are you really... Okay, if you can go into this... um, I'm going to try. Okay, I'm actually... I'm looking forward to your version because Bill is a decent teacher, much better than I am, and so now I'm going to sit down with the rest of you and I am going to try to to soak it in. But before I do that, we should mention now that this episode is sponsored by Gumleaf USA. Yeah, so this is a company that makes high-quality, super comfortable, handmade tall rubber boots. They're handcrafted for comfort and function, uh, but... You know, we think they look pretty good. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. And Bill and I were actually given a pair of their Royal Zip to try out for ourselves. And hands down, easily the most comfortable boot that I've used. Yeah, I think most people would, would consider these muck boots. Mm-hmm. But these are like fancy muck High boots. High quality muck boots. These yeah. are nice. And, and I feel like our crowd, maybe our audience might be the type of people that wouldn't mind investing in something that's going to be so useful. I know I I do that with my binoculars. I do that with the boots that I buy. It's definitely a worthwhile investment to to invest in a nice pair of boots that you can, you know, you don't have to worry about uh, wet feet all the time. And and, and it's great for botanizing, great for birding, great for herping. (laughs) I guess specifically that would be a good one. But it's a really, really great product. And they have styles for men, women, and kids. So if you're interested in high-quality tall rubber boots, we recommend visiting gumleafusa.com and explore their products. It's also a great way to support us and will help us do other cool things with the podcast. So, as always, there will be a link in the episode notes and on our website. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we actually do have a little logo of them on every single page of our website if you scroll down to the bottom. So uh, we have a link there to Always Wandering Art, and we have one to Gumleaf USA. So definitely go visit those guys and show them some love. Always Wandering Art. Did I say wondering? It does sound uh, like wondering. That's okay. I'm just, I think I just have a speech impediment, and I can't say their <laughs> name right. All right, go to gumleafusa.com. All right, back to the episode. <laughs> All right. So we were going to talk about the Harry Downey game. Sure. And what this paper from 2012 hypothesized was a model of the evolution of interspecific social dominance mimicry. So just the to ISDM. Focus, <laughs> ISDM. Interspecific between species social dominance mimicry so members of a socially dominant species like the hairy contest a resource by playing a version of the hawk dove game so let's discuss that first evolutionary game theory so you mentioned nash who mm-hmm. we said was the the focus of russell crowe yeah russell, <laughs> he's the focus of think, russell crowe think yeah. russell crowe <laughs> so he he created a lot of what we know of as game theory But in the 1970s, it was applied to evolution. Mm. So evolutionary game theory in the 70s um, tries to explain evolving populations in biology. All right. So you may have heard of John Maynard Smith and George Price. It tries to explain things like the basis of altruistic behaviors in Darwinian evolution. Right. So why would um, animals exhibit altruistic behaviors that doesn't seem to jibe with um, survival of the fittest, even though we know that's an oversimplification. Right, so uh, we should just say, just in case, altruism is just doing good stuff for the, just for doing it. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're not trying to get, well, that's, I think it's, 
you're presuming something when you're saying you're not trying to get something in return because I think a lot of times <laughs> we do stuff and we don't even realize we're getting something in return, but we're definitely getting something in return. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's, it's really, is there really any non-selfish acts, whether we're tricking ourselves or not or conscious of it or not? So who knows? And I think Steve is just barely scratching the surface <laughs> right. of this gigantic 50-gallon drum of worms, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's gigantic. Uh-huh. So the first game that, that Maynard Smith analyzed is what's called the classic hawk-dove game. And it was conceived as a way to analyze a contest over a shareable resource. Now... I got confused along the way because I kept picturing different species, hawks and doves. But correct me if I'm wrong, if you know more about this, Mm -hmm. it's really talking about a personality within a species. Like there's aggressive, Mm -hmm. uh, if you're talking about, say, foxes, there's aggressive foxes in a population and there's more... Uh, passive foxes in a population. Those would be the hawks and the doves. Right, yeah. I was going to say, I think the hawk and the dove are metaphors. Correct. Yeah. And I did not realize, I've been researching probably for... Well, because it's probably true for hawks and... Oh, well... (laughs) No! No, it's not true for... Wait, wait, well, doves have hawk-like wings, (laughs) right? Those backwards-pointed wings? I mean, doves are relatively fast, right? Sure, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I swear. Guys, look up rock doves. Look up any dove. I think that they say they have felcate wings. I think. Okay. I'm I'm pretty sure of it. And it's probably from having to escape from from, uh, fast, you know, uh, raptors anyway, yeah. But my point is that for most of researching this episode, reading about evolutionary game theory, because I knew nothing about this, Uh I was reading about the hawk-dove game, picturing hawks versus doves. And it was only yesterday afternoon going over my notes, I realized, wait a minute. Good thing we didn't record yesterday. <laughs> like, oh, they're just talking about personality. Right, right. So, Am I more of a hawk or more of a dove, you think? Dove. Yeah. I think we're both more dove-like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I could see that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so this is just explaining um, how populations will look it's trying to explain how populations will look and portions of populations will look so i'm not going to get into all the formulas but the overall goal of this is to explain how populations evolve what are called evolutionary stable strategies ess so if you're into genetics or if you've read richard dawkins's the selfish gene Mm -hmm. um, it talks a lot about this Oh, if you guys are unfamiliar with Richard Dawkins, he's that heathen who is going to be burning in hell. (laughs) (laughs) And he's a hero of both of us. (laughs) We like him a bit, yeah. We we got to see him, yeah. Yeah. I really like Unweaving the Rainbow. I thought that was a very interesting book of his. I haven't read that. Mm -hmm. And for me, someone who is completely unschooled in genetics, uh, but who's very interested in evolution and, and... uh, animals. I would recommend reading The Selfish Gene. It was a challenging read for me, mm-hmm. but I loved reading it and, and puzzling these things out because Dawkins is able to explain it even to dunderheads like myself. <laughs> so That's why you like him? I, I like him because he's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, 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 I have my issues sometimes with Richard Dawkins. But <laughs> well, I have my issues with you. So. Right. <laughs> that's a good point. So let's I get, have my issues with me. <laughs> let's get back to that 2012 paper. Yeah. So they were saying that mimicry allows members of a subordinate species, the downy, to pose as members of the dominant species, the hairy woodpecker. So they kind of took that hawk-dove game, and then they're saying downies are kind of sneaking in there, yes. pretending to be doves. So they would split the resource when facing less aggressive hairy woodpeckers 
while continuing to surrender the resource to dominant ones. Okay? The paper covered the evolutionary dynamics and behaviors of this game discussing conditions under which evolution will select for mimicry. And a subordinate species, the downy, will consist almost entirely of mimics. Mm-hmm. Simply put, if a hairy woodpecker misidentifies a downy as a hairy, maybe it would be less likely to chase the downy away from food or other valuable resources. Right. Okay. So the downy is mimicking the hairy. So not only are other birds tricked by the downy looking like the more aggressive hairy, but the also hairy. the hairy is tricked. Or at least sometimes the, tricked. Sometimes tricked, right. Now, oh, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty sure other birds are only sometimes tricked. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the paper, as far as I understood it, and again, folks, this paper was above my grade level. Right. Same here, <laughs> obviously. Um, it was just focusing on interactions between Harry's and Downey's. Oh, that's so interesting because mine, the paper that I read, ended with, but we need to consider, or I don't know if it ended with, but it brought that up. We need to consider that the Harry's are also being. So I think it's very important to wrap up talking about this paper by saying that it was completely based on mathematical models, not observations in the field. And one of the nice things about theoretical papers like this is that they often, especially anything that's publishable, will make predictions or you can work out predictions from them. Like what should we expect if the ISDM is true? We don't know if it's true, but what should we expect if it is true? And uh, the paper that I read brought up five different predictions of this model. And, and you can see some of them will work with the Downy and Harry Woodpecker. But um, the first is that the deception the ability to trick has to be physiologically plausible. And this one seems like the most obvious um, that, that like, of course, like you, you can't have like something the size of a, a chickadee trying to impersonate a, a red tailed hawk. So, so this is one of the more obvious. That's super forced perspective. <laughs> right. Is, is, is that just a really tiny red tail? <laughs> He's so cute. A baby red tail. Uh, Um, The second prediction is that the model species, they should be larger in body mass than the mimic species, and they should be socially dominant over them. This this really doesn't work unless there is a social dominance in this relationship. So the hairy dominant to the downy. Um, Well, that's what we're saying anyway. We're predicting. Yes, that's what we're predicting. The third is that there should be shared phenotypic similarities between the model and the mimic species that are not homologous. So basically, (laughs) when we're talking about homology, that means that they're derived from the same ancestor. We don't want homology in this case. We want two things that are unrelated with, with kind of different evolutionary backgrounds having similar morphological characteristics, which is exactly what we said with the Downy and the Harry. They don't have the same close ancestor, like they're in the same family and all that. They're not super closely related, and yet they look similar. What were you saying? Phenotype? And that phenotype, that particular plumage and the red spot on the nape of the neck and everything else, that's not something that comes from the ancestor. That's two things that independently evolved. Convergent evolution. Yeah, there was this convergent evolution. Yeah, and now we're finally getting into the somewhat interesting ones, because this (laughs) is where the ecology and the evolutionary arms race really kind of comes in. So you would expect that the model species, the one that's being mimicked, um, under natural selection will evolve distinct visual appearances that will evade the cost 
of the ISDM. And part of that cost is that they're, when you have a mimic that's really good at doing its job, it's taking resources away from the model. So you'd expect the model to evolve differences from the mimic. So the mimic is always playing catch up. Like it wants to be different from the mimic. Sure. Whereas the mimic is always trying to be similar to the model, the model should always try to get away from the mimic because the closer it is, the more that's being shared, less for them. The more direct competition. They want more for themselves. And if they have a mimic, they're getting less for themselves. So there is a cost to having a mimic copying you. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And this is where we actually would bring up the term co-evolutionary arms race (laughs) because and usually you think of um two maybe like a a bacteria and an animal that it's attacking or or like a predator and a prey or you know i before this i never really thought of it as a mimic and a model right (laughs) this is this is a new this is a new um avenue that i really have never um, really given much thought to and the paper said it's poorly understood when you just have an instance of mimicry where there's just two species involved yeah. So we just talked about the models evolving morphological characteristics that are different from their mimics, but also, and this is the last point, is that models may also evolve behaviors that are different from the mimic. And this could include, um, they, they specifically bring up non-courtship display behaviors and other ways that they may tell their own species apart from the mimics. Um, like vocalizations. Yeah, yeah. But these displays are also subject to mimicry <laughs> and you can have the mimics catching on to these non-morphological changes that could happen within the model species. So not only are they copying the look, but they're also copying behaviors. the behavior of the models. Okay. So those are things you would expect. I did bring up earlier though that one thing that that they had brought up is that the young aren't mimicked but i think it's because that's less important in terms of copying the young aren't sharing the resource the young are not the large aggressive (laughs) you know it wouldn't it wouldn't make as much sense for the young to be copied it's not necessarily only yeah it's really only it's really only economic you know in terms of copying someone to copy the thing you want to get the benefits from right. and they're not going to get benefits from copying the young right the young aren't collecting a resource right exactly yeah. and that's the best way of saying it i yeah. said it very poorly <laughs> <laughs> i also want to mention that there are cases of convergence not restricted to species of woodpeckers but also between woodpeckers and other species in other families um, and for and one example of this is that you have the buff spotted woodpecker of west africa it mimics something called the spotted honey glide which is not a woodpecker so it seems like i don't know who knows maybe this is just something woodpeckers do but they happen to do it within the family more than outside the family but you also get cases of it outside the family as well and that's it so bill's going to move on to challenging maybe our our notions of what we just taught you right so getting back to everything we've just talked about relating to the 2012 paper what they called the harry downey game relating it to theoretical ideas. In 2018, some researchers decided to look at the hairy downy game in real life. Do downy woodpeckers benefit from looking like hairy woodpeckers? This was done by researchers at Cornell. 
they said, well, look, this idea has been proposed, but it's never actually been tested. So we're going to use behavioral interaction data collected by feeder watch participants. Oh, okay. So, folks, if you're not familiar with Project Feeder Watch, that's a citizen science program run by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You can look it up online. We'll put a link in the episode notes. I do it at home, and during non-breeding months, you pick two days a week to observe your feeders, and you count the species and the number of individuals that come to your feeder. You can also record interactions between species. So you can record, say, if a, a goldfinch tries to bump another goldfinch off of a perch or if a downy woodpecker tries to bump a goldfinch off a perch and whether they were successful or not. Mm -hmm. So you can record those interactions. You don't have to, but you can. So the researchers looked at this data and they tested if downy woodpeckers encountered less aggression from hairy woodpeckers than would be expected if their encounters were just random. So is this idea of mimicry working? Because if it is then the Harrys would avoid um, direct competition with the Downies more often. Mm -hmm. They found that hairy woodpeckers chased downy woodpeckers away from feeders as much as you would expect from random encounters. Oh, wow. Okay, that's the last thing you want when you're looking for some kind of <laughs> real pattern. Right, so they're yeah. saying it doesn't seem to be playing out according to this data set. So they tested a different idea. And this is, goes along with what you were saying, Steve. Maybe downy woodpeckers looking like hairy woodpeckers was to fool other species. Mm, okay. Maybe it's Batesian mimicry. But they're not toxic. No, but it's still... Is toxic also a metaphor? <laughs> it doesn't have to be toxic. It's just some kind of warning. Oh, okay. I get it. So first, I think because I thought of it in terms of butterflies, right. I was thinking of toxic. That's why I brought up rattlesnakes. Yeah. Now, yeah. I could be wrong because this would just have more to do with like size i'm bigger than you are so i'm going to be more dominant i don't right. know if that counts as batesian mimicry or not so what they did is they used feeder watch data and they determined that downy woodpeckers are are especially dominant for their size that is they often win out at confrontations that involve some species much larger than themselves so for example northern cardinals they weigh almost two times as much as downy woodpeckers mm -hmm. but downy woodpeckers were able to usurp their spots on perches of feeders more often than if it was just random hmm. uh, now the paper did say that this was not a significant difference but it, there was enough data there to suggest we should be looking into this more right and folks i, I recently posted on facebook and uh we'll put it in the episode notes this led to another article by Cornell where there was this cool graphic where they had all these different feeder species. And if you hovered over one, you would see which species they were dominant over and which species they were more submissive to. Yeah. Um, Who was the best one? The red-bellied woodpecker? So the wuss. I say best. I don't mean <laughs> best. Who is you the one that dominated all of them? The badass of the yeah, feeder. Yeah. The badass of the feeder is the red-bellied woodpecker. Yeah. And then the wuss of the, the feeder is the American goldfinch. Oh, okay. <laughs> like everybody chases away goldfinches. Oh, don't they also have that really sad note in their song? <laughs> Don't they? You know what I'm talking about. Do, That's one yeah. of the characteristic parts of their, their call. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we could play it right now. We could put this in. Okay, yeah. yeah. You know what? And and I let's just do it. Retroactively, we'll add in Downey and I, Harry calls when we were talking about yeah. them before. I had actually meant to mention that, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, I think they're different enough 
to where you, you'll hear it. No, yeah. scratch that, folks. We'll say this uh, uh, in hindsight, that there were actually Downies and Harrys flying around <laughs> us at the exact time we were talking well, about. Well, I was just saying, I just hope we picked them up. But if we didn't, then I'm just, I'll just add it in if I need to. But. <laughs> All right. So the, the researchers went on to say, how can they pull this off? Downy woodpeckers may use the resemblance to Harrys to fool other species. Like cardinals. Yeah, into thinking that they're the bigger Harry. So if you were a cardinal and you thought you saw a Harry flying towards you, you might be very quick to get out of the way. Uh, so it's as I mentioned before, the pattern was so subtle that more observations are needed to confirm this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're going to be looking more at feeder watch data, but... Can't you just imagine that stupid cardinal with its <laughs> dunce, that red dunce hat on, just like getting freaked out by a little downy? A little downy woodpecker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what Idiot. <laughs> So what they're going to be doing, which which I thought was cool, is they're going to be looking at interactions at feeders in areas where downies and harries don't overlap. Oh, okay. So there's parts of their range where you're only going to find downies or you're only going to find harries. Not a, not a ton of their range. No, yeah. no, because most of the range they do overlap. But there are some areas, like in Florida or parts of the southwest, where mm-hmm. they don't overlap. Got it. So, as I said, why do downies and harries look alike? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Beats me, and I just did an episode on it. No. <laughs> but we can say it's not because they're related. Yeah, and it's they're not because related. they're a toxic, or <laughs> as right. I'm learning. No. Maybe they are. <laughs> Let's go eat some downy woodpecker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's it. Yeah, I think so. I don't have anything else. Nope. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. First and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you, Dean. Our newest patron. All right, Dean. Yeah. So we're thankful for every single patron, but at the end of every show, we like to give a special thanks to our top patrons. So thank you, Rob, we named the dog Indy, and especially Ken, Diane, Alyssa, Morgan, Elizabeth, Daniel, Susan, and Rachel. And finally, a special thank you to Orange, Julian, and Alyssa, both of which increased their patronage, which is incredibly generous. Thank you guys so much. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yeah. So we also want to thank our new five-star reviewers on iTunes. So thank you, Miss Boo, Vitruvian Coyote, and Biophil. So guys, keep those reviews coming. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And I also want to mention that Always Wandering Art did the artwork for this episode again. So uh, last time I messed up, but this time I got to him in time, and we got some beautiful artwork. Uh, I think it's of a... Harry? Oh, man. I think it's a downy. Oh, it's a downy. All right. Well, it's it's beautiful artwork. So definitely go check those guys out. We always have a link to their uh, their website, their Facebook, and their Etsy store in the episode notes. That's right. As we said before, please go check out gumleafusa.com. We have links in the episode notes and on our website. And if you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com, which I guess... We did get the email saying that we've been messing that up lately. We want to thank listener Lauren for pointing out our email address error. Apparently, we've said it wrong in a few episodes. Yeah, and you know what? I'm not even going to question it. I I guarantee we said it wrong. Yeah. We also want to thank her for that cool picture she sent of the leaf that was split right down the middle, two completely different colors on either side. Yeah. Uh, Shout out to episode two. Uh, I still could not give a clear explanation for why that happened. Fall colors, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And don't forget to follow us and like us on Facebook, tweet at us on Twitter at Field Guides Pod, or check us out on Instagram at Field Guides Podcast.
And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash the field guides or through our PayPal donate button on our website. But if you're like me and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share the episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. And you can always visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And one thing that we're going to have to start saying, you folks out there, you can ask your smart speaker to play The Field Guides. (laughs) I tried it out on my Google Mini, and it works. (laughs) And lastly, parents out there, remember to get your kids outside. Let them flip over rocks, turn over logs, let them get dirty and muddy. Play with some of that frozen mud, or actually I should say mostly thawed mud right now. (laughs) Um, It has not been below freezing very much (laughs) where we are. (laughs) After doing our episode on the Subnivian layer, it really drove home. We have not had consistent snow cover. Mm -hmm. I'm just... All those little critters out there, I'm feeling for them. Yeah, I know, I know. It's like the the leaves don't do it anywhere as well (laughs) as the snowpack would. So hopefully by next episode, we'll have some deep snow cover that you folks can listen to us crunch through. Yeah, Yeah. I know you guys love that. (laughs) Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next month. Yeah, see you next month. All right, I got you a present. No way. I did, a little Christmas present. So by the way, guys, I just talked about not buying Bill a present. (laughs) So, oh man. My dog scratched it, so it's a little ripped. All right, well. Oh boy. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. So I should say this is kind of a shout out to what we had mentioned episode eight earlier, the vegan episode. Uh, Bill got me a cutting board that says, this is where I murder vegetables. That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Merry yeah. Christmas. And uh, I have nothing for you. So. <laughs> That's all right, Steve. Just being with you is present enough. <laughs> yeah. So um, happy uh, belated holidays, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Happy holidays.